The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Perhaps there are in our minds a lot of images and ideas bouncing around right now, thinking about the return of Christ and His coming judgment. Perhaps thinking about afflictions of friends and family and people that we know around us. But what we need to come to consider now, so let me draw all of our attention together here onto one thought. What we need to consider now is something simple and marvelous. So let me get at it in Psalm 27. Listen to this. If you have a Bible, you can look at it, but just listen to this. One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is the longing of the psalmist. It should be the longing of our hearts as well. And as I'm going to unpack here today from the Gospel of Luke, it is something that God has made real for us. The one thing that we long for that we ask, that we seek after, to dwell in his presence and gaze upon his beauty. Let's pray. Father, you are almighty, and you are sovereign and great and high, but beyond and, and maybe all around that, there is a marvelous beauty. It is sometimes hard for us to get it in our minds when we think about words like sovereign and high because it sounds distant and about power and, and can be cold. But you are a high and lifted up, beautiful and glorious God. And one thing we would ask, that you would draw us near. That you would not remain distant. You would not remain aloof. But that we would know the fullness of you that is an intimate God, that is a personal God, that is a God who wants relationship with us and has acted to connect and to make it so. This is the cry of the psalmist, and we can ask for it, but as soon as we ask, we have to say, and blessed be the name of the Lord that you have done it, that you have already brought to pass that which we long for that you have brought us into your dwelling place and given us privilege to gaze upon you. You are so kind. Lord, we pray and we say thanks be to you. And we ask that you would enable us this morning as we consider this, this longing and this fulfillment and then as we also look forward because we know there is more to come to dwell in your very presence and to gaze upon the fullness of your beauty forever and ever and ever points us towards the future, points us towards promise not yet fulfilled. So Lord, this morning would you enable us to, to celebrate and to long, both. Open up this passage to us, Lord, and help me to make clear what's here. Press it into our hearts and minds in ways that lead us 
to be a people rejoicing, a people celebrating, and a people who hope for the more that we know is coming. Help us live in this tension, Lord. Make your word clear. Spirit of God, would you have your way here in this room with us, with all of us? Would you create in us a quickness of thought and a a quickness of heart that we would not be slow and we would not be dull and we would not be dense and we would not be distracted and we would not be kept away, but that we would be alert and alive and brought into your presence to see and to hear and to worship. Spirit of God, illumine Christ before us right now and grow in us thankful delight, celebration, and longing. For Christ's glory and for the good of us, his people, I pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 5. A chapter that began, you'll recall, with Jesus reaching out to and calling Peter and some of his friends to be followers of his, to be disciples of his. A situation that was repeated in some ways in the passage that we looked at last week where Jesus reached out to and called to himself a man named Levi, called him to follow him. All throughout this chapter, we've seen Jesus at work to, to show us and to Um, express to us and teach us what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of his. So like Levi, we should be a people who are concerned to call people to repentance, to call people to turn to him, but in a way that is laced with grace, that is not condemning or off-putting, but is welcoming and receiving, like Levi received his friends in and tried to do all that he could to connect them to Jesus because he himself had met Jesus and was in love. So that theme of of discipleship has been throughout this whole chapter, but at the same time, there's been another idea developing, another theme going on, a gradual discontent between Jesus and those, or at least some of those, who came and listened to him, saw him and heard him. It began when Jesus dared to forgive sin in front of the Pharisees and then proved they had the authority to do that by raising the man up, telling him to walk. And it continued as he then sat down and fellowshiped with these folks we saw last week, sinners and tax collectors. Without demanding that they clean up their act first, he fellowshiped with them, and the Pharisees were aghast. It continues on what we'll look at next week with the the Sabbath issues and how Jesus treats Sabbath. There's this issue going on of a discontent, of of a disconnect, of of an unsettledness between Jesus and his ways and what he's doing and many of his listeners and their ways and what they're doing. There's There's a divide growing. And that theme, as well as the theme of discipleship, both of them are in our passage today at the end of chapter five. Jesus is going to address a question about fasting. And as he does so, he's going to talk about a change in the times, a disconnect change in the times, a disconnect with how he acts and how others around him act. And as he does that, as he answers this question, he's going to show us something about what it means for us to be followers of his, what disciples should be like in our attitudes as we engage with him, as we walk with him now. As we live in these times, looking towards the times that are to come. Here's my main point for this morning, which I'm going to draw out here after we read the passage and pass back through it to make sure the details are clear. Here's the main point that I'm working towards. Put it in a sentence. Celebrate what Christ has already done and remain discontent as you long for what he will yet do. So you see there, it's not really about fasting exactly. It's about the attitude in a disciple that Jesus is kind of getting at as he answers the question about fasting. We have two different attitudes here, which are going to kind of become my two points eventually here. We are to celebrate what Christ has already done and remain discontent as you long for what he will yet do. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read the passage. 
beginning in verse 33 through the end of the chapter. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Word of the Lord in Luke 5. The settings changed. Similar topics of eating and drinking and food, similar topics, but the setting has changed from the, the setting of Levi. Some unnamed people come, and really they make a statement that Jesus treats, again, as a legitimate question. Might have been a complaint, in fact, but he treats it as a question that he answers. The disciples of John fast and pray often, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours don't. Why not? It's the implied question. And the inclusion of John the Baptist and his disciples alerts us that this is not this fasting and praying, this going without food, fasting, so as to express to God a, a seriousness, an earnestness about one's prayer. John and his disciples, they do that, which alerts us this is not wrong. This is not a bad thing to do. In fact, it's quite right. You read through the Old Testament, it's all over the Scriptures. Perhaps you're familiar with, with a great incident, 1 Samuel chapter 7. We touched on this some time back when we were preaching through Samuel. Perhaps you remember. The people of God turned away from God, and in their sin, God had abandoned them and left them to the, to the hand of the Philistines. And then Samuel comes onto the scene and leads Israel in fasting and in repentance for their sin and in crying out to God that he would come and deliver them from their enemies. And he leads them like that, they do that, and God does. God intervenes, and God acts, and God delivers. That's fasting and prayer there and in a, a bunch of other places in the Old Testament. A humbling of oneself or of the nation before God. Mourning in sorrow over sin. Fasting in sackcloth and ashes, a common phrase. Praying and pleading for mercy and for forgiveness and for deliverance. It was an extremely important and extremely common practice among the devout religious people of the day. There were national days of fasting, declared national days of fasting. There would be regular periods of fasting. People fasted on their own. Many people, like the Pharisees, fasted twice every week. It was extremely common. This is clearly right, clearly what God expects of us. Every religious person knows that. Even your buddy John prescribed it. Why don't you? Well, he answers it in two ways. 34 and 35 more directly speak to the fasting. But then he does, but that answer that he gives there, it doesn't really make a lot of sense if you don't understand the next longer answer in 36 and following. But initially, he just talks about a wedding. And he says, you're accusing my disciples of eating and drinking, of a party, of a celebration. Well, what do you expect at a wedding? It's a wedding feast, he says. You can't expect people to fast while they are guests at a wedding, particularly that of a friend. The friends of the groom, the friends of the bridegroom, they're going to party and celebrate. It's his wedding. They're enjoying it. It's a time of great rejoicing. Later, there, there will be a time later when he is taken away from them, when he is snatched away. Then they'll fast, but not now. That's the first answer. But that's all about times, really, which is why he tells them the parable. The second answer, 36 and following, is full of the world, words old and new. Dominates the next four verses. Old and new, old and new, creating a contrast to the point 
See it repeatedly. No one cuts a piece from a new, that is, an unused and better garment to patch an old one. All you get is a ruined new garment and a poorly patched, worn-out garment. No one does that. And no one takes new wine and puts it in old wineskins. Wineskins made from skins, they have some elasticity when they're new, and as the wine goes into it and the fermentation continues, the gases expand, and, and an elastic wineskin will stretch, but after a while, as it gets old and brittle, it won't stretch anymore. You put new wine in it, what happens? It bursts. And the wineskin's destroyed, and the wine is all lost. You put new wine in new wineskins. Common point in both stories, old can't take new. Old can't take new. New should not be added into or added onto old. Rather, old is set aside completely, not mixed together, set aside completely, and the new must be wholly embraced. But the problem that people have with me is everybody likes the old. Last verse. Once you get used to the old way of doing things, once you get used to the old habits, the old practices, people have a pretty hard time embracing the new. That's what's behind the conflict. New has come, and the old rejects it. That's the passage. He's really talking about times. He takes this discussion about fasting to move on to something else, to talk about himself and the times. So here's the first point I'm going to make. The first attitude of disciples in this time is this. Here, here's my first point. Celebrate. The new connection to God has already arrived. Now, celebrate. Really, celebrate. Because the new connection to God has already come. The big point he's making in 36 and following is the bridegroom is here, by which I mean, let me explain, new is here. A new that's come that cannot be combined with old, but sets aside old completely, and something new has arrived, something new that's wonderful, something new that should be grabbed. But what is he talking about when he means, when he talks about new? Well, think about that. He's talking about something really big, a change in paradigms about how people connect to God. And if we were, for instance, if we were the early church, maybe in the book of Acts, we would look at this and perhaps press these words and, and explore this in a certain direction, and what we would find here is, is an answer to a very pressing question. Do Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses, the old covenant? Do Gentiles need to keep the law to become followers of Jesus? And the answer we would find is no. The new has come and has completely replaced the old. It is to be set aside. It is obsolete. It was preparatory. Now it is gone. That's an, a very important question answered here, but it's not exactly our question today because we already know that. Instead, what's more relevant for us to explore is what it is about the new that makes the old obsolete. Why? What's going on when the new comes that causes the old to be set aside? And if we figure that out, we'll find reason for the attitude that we are to have, that we see here in Christ's disciples, this attitude of celebration that we are to have. So, we need to follow that thread. Why? What is it about the, the coming of the new that makes the old obsolete? And the clue is in the word that Jesus chose to describe himself. 
bridegroom. It's not an accidental word. It's not an incidental word. It's very deliberate. He wants us thinking about weddings. So here's what's going to happen right now. I'm going to set wedding out here, bridegroom out here, and then I'm going to walk this way. Okay, so be alert. We're coming back to this. But we've got to get there along the path that all of these folks in this text walk. So we're going away from it, but here it is, coming back. So first step away. Remember what we already said about fasting. It's done in the same spirit of how Samuel led Israel back in 1 Samuel. It's a calling out to God from our, st- from our place of lowliness and our, our place of despair saying we hunger, the, the literal expressing the, the metaphorical hungering, we hunger for you, God, to act. We are low because of our sin. In our need, you could use the language that you should be familiar with, Isaiah 61 language. We are poor, we are captives, we are blind, we are oppressed, and so we mourn over ourselves because we got ourselves in this situation. And as we look at our condition and we sorrow for it, In our sin, we have turned away from you and we cover ourselves in sackcloth and ashes. We are, in the words of Isaiah 62, verse 4, we are desolate and our name is forsaken. I'm walking away here. We have turned away. We have abandoned you and so you have then abandoned us to our enemies. You can see the Israelites in front of the Philistine army right there. You have set us in front of our enemies and have stepped away from us and it's our own fault. And we plead then for you to turn your face towards us again and be no more far off and distant, but draw near. We who are forsaken, will you connect with us? We who are abandoned, will you come and claim us and will you deliver us from them ones? That's fasting and prayer, humbling and humiliation and a pleading for God to act and to intervene and to come and to deliver me, the sinner. And it obviously fits desperate situations like 1 Samuel. But the devout of that day realized that actually fits the whole of this time. In its extreme, I mean, if I layer on all of those words and give all of that tone, it catches an extreme situation, but... The devout, and I mean that word in a good way, the the righteous worshipers of that day realize that actually captures the religious tone of this whole time. They wouldn't have called it the old time because they weren't in the new yet. It captures the religious tone of this whole old time. Everything about our experience with God says, come close but not too close. There is distance and separation in everything. Just think of the old. Think of the temple regulations and the sacrificial regulations and all the laws about clean and unclean. If you ever work through all those, you realize, who could ever live a day being clean? You get unclean when you go to the bathroom. You get unclean when you have sexual intercourse. You get unclean when you have a baby. You get unclean when you touch a dead person. When you, when you go to a funeral, you get unclean, 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 unclean. Everything about our whole time says we are unclean and we are kept away and we are separate in the catastrophic situations like First Samuel, but actually day by day by day by day by day. Oh, Lord, we are unclean. Oh, Lord, I cover myself and I mourn for what I am that keeps me away from you and how I can come to the temple, but I can't. I can come into your presence, but I can't. Oh, God, would you change? Would you move us from Isaiah 62, verse 4, part A, to Isaiah 62, verse 4, part B, the second half of the verse? No more called desolate, but my delight is in her, and your land called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And verse 5, 
As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's Isaiah. And it's not the only place in the Old Testament that picks up the language that we often think of as New Testament language. God and his people, Christ and his bride, the church, grooms and brides, marrying. That's Old Testament language that picks up this idea of one day God will wed his people to himself. And they will no longer be forsaken, but they will be claimed. No longer set off, but drawn near. God himself will make intimate union with his people one day. And the tone throughout all of the old is bring that one day. Because before then, we are still kept away. We are still unclean. We are still far off. Lord, bring that day. And Jesus then says, that day is now already. The bridegroom is here. He's walked away. And we came back. The bridegroom is present. Your intimate connection to God has been made real. So fast and weep and mourn and sorrow no more. Jesus says that right there when he says, you want these people to fast at at a wedding feast? I'm here. Celebrate. Fast and weep and mourn and sorrow no more. The old has gone and I have come. Fulfillment has happened. The wedding is now. Already. Now, here's where we are, Christian. We just we we have to we have to walk through that because that is the the theological, the the intellectual core to any feelings. And we should have feelings. We must have feelings. But those are feelings that are based on on a truth, on on a a core of, of theology that is robust, whole, true, fits the mind. When Christ came, he took upon himself our God forsaken status. that rightfully rested on us, he took it upon himself. He was termed forsaken as the Father made him sin in our place. God made him desolate. God abandoned him to the cross and then to the grave as he turned his face away from him and submitted him to captivity to death. He bore our iniquities. He carried our sorrows. He was put to grief. When we look at the weeping and the wailing and the mourning of fasting and the sackcloth and ashes, what we should see in that is right in this moment, what Jesus is talking about in Luke 5 is that you, Christian, gloriously so, you, Christian, have been lifted out from beneath the sackcloth, the ashes taken off of your head. You stepped out and Christ stepped in and they were poured on him. And in his sorrow, God the Father threw him away. That's the core. That's the the doctrine. The glorious truth. Upon which then, all I can say is, oh, please that it would be true. But that is the the core, the intellectual, the doctrinal truth upon which you walk in wedding feast, joy and celebration, weeping no more. 
I can't make that happen by saying it. All I can do is, is plead with God to bring it to you and plead with God to open your eyes to it that you would realize I am a celebrator. I'm a partier. I'm a delighter. I am a married and wed one. I am a guest at a great feast. You are so, so marvelously gifted and blessed. Not because of, of you, but because the great and glorious Almighty One drew near and sent the connector to you and wed you to Himself. Already. Now, I recognize fully and completely that I'm, I'm talking and I'm, I'm pressing joy and celebration to some of us who sit in the midst of terrible situations. Yes, uh, I'll come to that. But there is something the but is setting that aside, recognizing it, saying, I'm going to come to that. But there is something, Christian, there is something right here in this reality that God has already sent the bridegroom, has already made connection that we already are wed to him, that we already are his bride, that we already are in this text sitting down to eat and drink with him. Already. There is something there that should govern and by govern, I mean rule and control our thought process and our attitudes as we walk through this life every single day. Yes, there is sorrowing, but oh my goodness, there should be rejoicing because there is such great grounds for it. Such great Grounds for it. All of the distance between you and God has been taken up by God. You've been closed to Him, joined to Him. There is nothing to despair over and nothing anymore to fear. And there is no need, catch this carefully. There is no need to coerce or contort ourselves or behave or perform in a certain way so that his pleasure and his smile rests upon us, so that his promise to do us good is acted out in our lives. No, that's already sure. We so often, as, as Christians, we so often miss that. Your job as a Christian your, maybe your job title, if you want to put it there. Maybe you, maybe you put in there celebrator rather than performer. How many of us, ask this of yourself, how many of us, your job description in your mind really says performer? I, I know I'm not working my way into heaven. I know that, but... Day by day, what I think I'm supposed to do when I get up today is perform. In fact, that's how I heard everything he was talking about in the past weeks. I'm supposed to share my faith with people. I'm supposed to, to invite them into my house and be gracious with them. I'm supposed to give up my, my whole life, put my life on the cross for, for Jesus. I'm supposed to perform. That's how I heard all that. Isn't that what he was talking about? No. How much of us, your job description says, performer? And when you recognize, when you see, oh man, I'm a failure, your first thought is, I better perform a little better. Is that your first thought? Maybe your job description is performer then. Celebrator. Celebrator. 
What are you supposed to do at a wedding feast? Celebrate. No wedding, nobody in the wedding party, not not, not the bride, not the best man, not the, the fifth guy down, nobody does the dishes that day. Somebody else does. You just celebrate. Now, what comes out of that in life? What, certainly God calls us to, to obedience. Certainly he calls us to, to follow after him as disciples and to walk in his path. There are things to do, of course. But how that comes out of us is the very same way that it comes out of us in all other love relationships. It comes out of us as response because of love and response in anticipation of greater love. It comes out of relationship, not to form it. Celebrator. Christian. We should celebrate. God wants us to see all that He has done and to rest in it and to rejoice in it and to realize He is marvelous and wonderful, wise and powerful. He planned something and executed it and then enacted it in our lives, Father, Son, and Spirit, to bring us to himself as a beautiful, adorned bride joined to him in the period of longing and hoping is over. Celebrate for what he has already done. And then the second observation, which is shorter. This may sound like I'm talking out of the other side of my mouth. There's a tension here. Remain discontent as you long for what he will yet do. Remain discontent as you long for what he will yet do. Verse 35 is an aside. It's not on the main, the main flow of the argument. The main flow of the argument is to explain that we celebrate now because what we were all longing for before has come. The old is out, the new is in. It's time to party. However, verse 35 introduces a balance that we all know intuitively is present because, as I was just saying, as I'm talking about celebrating, there are some of us who are sitting in the midst of great trouble. And it sounds almost bizarre to talk about celebration when I look at life around me. Verse 35 says, There will be other days. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. It's a bit ominous in its context because what's going on when a groom is snatched away from his own wedding? What's that about? It sounds something bad and unexpected. And of course, he's referring to the cross, burial, resurrection, ascension. In those days, the disciples will fast. And those days are our days now also. So, is there a contradiction here? Or am I now going to to speak in a way that just undermines everything else that I just said? No. Not quite. Because while we are once again sorrowful and longing and humbly pleading similar attitudes, maybe even similar behavior. Fasting is again appropriate for us. Now, setting aside of food to express a a focus and a concern to God in prayer, that's appropriate for us, the practice and the attitude behind it. So it's similar. Jesus expects that we'll do it. Notice he doesn't command it, but he does expect it because here's where it's dissimilar. He expects we'll do it because he knows 
how people respond to the sudden absencing of a deeply beloved one with whom they have a relationship. Any of us. You have a loved one, maybe a spouse, maybe, maybe a child, maybe a parent. Any of us, somebody that we deeply love, if they're sent away, they go to school, they go away on a business trip, they're deployed overseas in some way, how do we feel about that? We mourn. We're sad. We long for it. We do everything we can to, to reach out and maintain connection, and we think about them often, and sometimes we, we even cry in the absence of, and we can't wait for the, that that reconnection that'll come and, and we eliminate whatever kind of barriers there are that would keep us distance from each other. We, we work at union and we long for reunion. That's how we are. And Jesus says, because I have married them, so to speak, we are now a couple and when we're torn apart, of course they will mourn. That's how people are with those they love. So the difference is that we are no longer fasting and mourning and hoping for God to do something. Now we are, we are fasting and mourning because he has already done. And we want more of it. We want the fullness of it. We've tasted a little bit of it. We've, for a moment we have experienced and we want to sit down at the banquet and eat the whole thing clean through. No longer interrupted. No longer kept apart. This attitude, Christians, should also be us. Even in the midst of our celebrating, there should be and there must remain in us a, a certain attitude of, of discontent because we know while what we have is wonderful, it is not everything. So we're not discontent with what we have, that it is too little, but discontent because there is so much more yet to come. The wedding and the marriage were interrupted. And so we Christians now sit down and we say, Oh Lord, would you draw near again and finish it all? Complete it all. Let us engage with you face to face, intimately, forever. One thing I ask of you, Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To gaze upon His beauty forever face to face not through a glass dimly I want you personally and intimately now forever oh Lord bring that day that attitude is also the attitude that marks a disciple an attitude that has a heart that cannot be content here in this place that is not our home that cannot be content with partial glimpses and temporary shadows and, and just a little bit of the experience that fleets away, but wants it all forever fully, knows that God has promised it and asks for him to bring it to pass soon. Do you know him like that? Is that the heart attitude with which you walk through your celebrations your celebrations. You must hold on to celebration because you are a wedded woman. Even the men. By the way, that's fair to say because sometimes I say that the women are even sons. Even the men, we are wedded women. We are brides. I know that's bizarre to think about. We are wedded ones. I'll say it like that. Celebrate, but be discontent, but celebrate. Perhaps you should ask God to grow in you a longing and a sorrowing that is driven by a deeper appreciation of what is to come, not by a depreciation of what already is, but a deeper appreciation of what is to come and is not yet here. Perhaps you might listen again to a couple of sermons that were preached this last summer 
Pastor Jed and I each preach from the book of Revelation and are on the website. Listen to them and pray that God would fuel in you a longing for the city that is to come. For a place where there is no more darkness at all. Where there are no more tears at all, but a place where the glory of the Lord shines through the whole place and sparkles off of every bejeweled wall. And we are with him, the light that fills the whole place. Perhaps you should consider also then the disappointing remaining sin in you. Not to pull out the whip and beat yourself, but to consider the disappointing remaining sin, to keep using the analogy, the abiding unfaithfulness to this beloved spouse. And to be grieved by that and to know that one day when he returns, that will all be gone, removed from you. Perhaps you should consider 1 Corinthians 15, particularly the last half of that passage, and walk through, particularly if you're younger and you don't experience this intimately yet, walk through decay and decline Hmm. or bring the day when there is no more decay and I will not feel like I myself am sand running through the fingers of my hand but I am, but I am whole and I am full I am right bring that day when the body of weakness and decay is laid to rest and a body of strength and glory is brought up Perhaps you should look around and maybe read the newspaper or follow, follow the news or, or consider your friends or your family members around you and consider the abiding destruction that sin has, has wreaked on this whole world. There is much sorrow from evil that remains out there from the fact that the fall still hold sway on this earth, and one day when he makes it all new, that'll be gone. Oh, Lord, come. We are not content, Lord. We are not content with the world the way it is, with my body the way it is, with my soul the way it is, with the distance between us the way it is. Not content. With an attitude of longing and, and prayerful pleading and Fasting even, we say, Lord, come. Bring what you have promised to fully complete. The new heaven and the new earth and the Revelation 19 resumption of and completion of the feast of the Lamb with His bride. He has promised to bring that to you, brothers and sisters. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, sees that, is, longs for it, it, cannot ever be completely at rest without that. And at the same time, is not characterized by a, a morose, deep, despairing, frowning, cast-down attitude because, frankly, we are a remarkably blessed people already. To celebrate and to be discontent, there, there is a difficulty there. We live in between the times. The new has already come. The old is gone. The new has already come. But it is not yet all already. And so we're stuck for a bit, sorrowing and ever rejoicing. Disciple, follower of Jesus, set your eyes on him and look to him and celebrate what he has done. 
and plead with him, come Lord Jesus and do more. In that vein, then, let me pray. God, may you open our eyes to see the great problem of old separation from you has been brought to an end by you to the praise of your glorious grace. You made a way for us who are forsaken to be welcomed. And then with that, you promise us heirs of the kingdom and partakers of the divine nature that is yet to come in its fullness. And so, Lord, we will not rest until then. Further on in Isaiah 62, you talk about people who will give you no rest until you establish Zion. And so we plead with you, bring the kingdom and set it up in fullness. Establish that which you have promised to establish. Make us a people who pray, pleading, sorrowing, discontent, even while in full-throated joy we celebrate at the party that you have already kindled. It burns within us, Lord. It's real. It's true. Help us to be a people who rejoice even in our sorrow. Build your church. Bring honor to your name, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.